0: So this morning, church, we finish our study of the book of Colossians. It's been a long journey, a fruitful journey for me anyway, and as we discuss, the third section of this theme of Paul's cohorts in Christ. Paul is in prison, damp prison, uh, by himself. Uh, he'll go back into prison in a few couple of years, and he'll, we think, forfeit his life at that point. We're still two years away. But as he is in prison, he now comes to the point of remembering and rejoicing in the cohort of friends around him who were wholehearted and gospel-driven and Christ-focused. And he says because of these men, basically, he is able to maintain his faith and thrive in his faith. And I've asked you several times recently, who are your two o'clock in the morning friends? I call them your Waffle House friends. Who do you call when things go downhill? Who do you call when you need a listening ear? And Paul gives us a glimpse, a window into his two o'clock in the morning friends that he would call. We met the following the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we met a man named Tychicus. And describes Tychicus in this fashion. He says in verse 7 of chapter 4 Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. He does not say he's a really good friend. No, he says he's a beloved brother in Christ. He is a faithful minister in Christ and he is a fellow servant in the Lord. The the, the, the focus is the reality of Christ. And then we meet a man named Onesimus. It says, Onesimus is with him. He is a faithful and beloved brother. Once again, the designation is about Christ. This Onesimus is one of you. Last week, we met a man named Epaphras, who uh, was the pastor of the church at Colossae and Laodicea and this is what he says about Epaphras verse 12 he says Epaphras who is one of you a servant of Christ Jesus greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature fully assured in all the will of God so so all of these guys have their point of reference in the reality of who Christ is And today we meet two other men, a man named Demas and a man named John Mark. Here, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And then in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician greets you as does Demas. So, These two guys, I'm gonna wrap it together and I think it's gonna make sense. But uh, there is a term, if you study history, there is a term called hagiography. Hagiography means that you write about someone in such a way that you overstate their good qualities and you minimize their bad qualities. Uh, so some of the books, especially the books written in the 19th century, were hagiographies. They, they really, you read them and you walked away going, man, these, these guys, really, did they really ever take showers? Did they ever get dirty? Did they ever have a bad day? And and it can be very discouraging. For example, for years I've been um, interested in a guy named Stonewall Jackson, who was a general in the Southern Army in the Civil War. Jackson was uh, from Lexington, Virginia area, uh, went to West Point, almost flunked out but by the time he was a senior, I think he was number six in his class, uh, became a professor of math at VMI, people made fun of him because he was socially awkward and was probably one of the, the greatest tactical officers in the war between the states or the Civil War. He died at the age of 39 when some of his own troops mistakenly fired upon him and he was mortally wounded. Uh, May of 1863 anyway Stonewall Jackson so years ago I read a, a biography by his, of Jackson by his chief of staff a man named R.L. Dabney R.L. Dabney a wonderful Presbyterian theologian from the Southern Presbyterian Church who wrote an incredible three volume systematic theology that I have so R.L. Dabney but I, read, I remember reading that biography going good grief I'm not sure Stonewall really was a sinner I mean, Dabney was just how great he was. And, but a couple years ago, I read a book called Rebel Yell, another biography of Stonewall Jackson, written by a guy named S.C. Gwynn, entitled The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson. And in the book, he talked about how Jackson was non-communicative and how he let himself get run down and couldn't respond to orders the way he should, and he did this and did that, and that, that he wasn't a perfect man. I thought, well, this is an honest biography that talks about a very exceptional man. But see, there's an difference between biography and hagiography, And one thing I love about the scripture is that it's not hagiographic. It points out the warts and the blemishes in many of the heroes of the scripture. And I'm just going to mention a few of those people and really to encourage your heart. Because one thing I get from this is God uses broken people. He does. And none of us are perfect And all of us, on our best day in the month of August, on the best hour of our best day in the month of August, need the covering of the blood of Jesus. So, for example, there's a man in the Old Testament called Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham is the father of the church. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, Romans in the New Testament says in chapter 4, verse 20, no distrust made Abraham waver at all regarding the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So so Abraham was told as an old, old, old man, your wife will have a child and he will be... uh, from your lineage and you will bless the nations of the world, Abraham and his state, The Bible says was credit to him, as righteousness. But when you read, every time I read Genesis, I, I, I think Abraham had some major, major warts. I, I have known a lot of despicable men, but I've never known a man to sell his wife out as a prostitute, to sell her out. Abraham did it twice. This is Father Abraham. Let me just read you. This is Genesis 12. Uh, They go into Egypt, and it says this. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, Father Abraham, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and she was not down good looking. I mean, she just wasn't cute. She must have been stunningly beautiful. I'll tell you why if you read the text. Anyway, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you are my sister. That that, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. How's that for a godly guy? So when they get to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. I mean, these guys talked about she was beautiful. The princesses, princess heard that she was beautiful, and they don't affair and says, Man, there is a woman out there that is absolutely throw down Jezebel, bad term, good looking. And it says, it says this. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. But the Lord afflicted poor old Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh, he didn't, he didn't know. The Lord afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was not your sister but your wife? Now then, get, get out of here, take her and go. And so they left. So Abram is bad. So you, you think he learned his lesson? No. Chapter 20. They go to a guy, a place that's ruled by a guy named Abimelech. And this is what godly Abraham did. Abraham said to his wife Sarah, Tell them that you're my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Behold, you are a dead man, Abimelech, because you have a woman whom you've taken, and she's another man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, I am his brother? I have done this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands." And so God said, you're right, and he didn't kill him. And so Abimelech calls Abraham in and says, Abraham, what, what are you doing, man? And this is what Abraham said. He says, Abraham, what, what, what did you see that you did this horrible thing? And Abraham said, well, I, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And I, I thought, Abraham's... There there are times in his life when he is a major league loser, and yet God used him. I I think of a guy named David. You know the story of David. Second or 1 Samuel 11. David, a man after God's own heart. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Every time I get to 1 Samuel 11, I just... Or 2 Samuel, eleven, I just shake my head. and just. Okay, okay. He's supposed to be out battling. He's not. He's at home. He goes out on top of his roof, and he sees a woman taking a bath, not his wife. And we talk about the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, of the first table of the law, that deal with our relationship with God, and the last six commandments to deal with our relationship with our fellow man. You start with, with honor your father and your mother. So, so David saw her. He coveted her. Tenth commandment. He, he brought her into his house and he committed adultery, sixth commandment. He stole another man's wife, eighth commandment. He murdered her husband, sixth commandment. Adultery, seventh commandment. And, and, and then he lied about it to everybody, eighth commandment. He broke the second table of the law. I guess he dishonored his mom and dad. He, he did it all in one fell swoop. And this is a man after God's own heart. And because of that, there was havoc that came upon his family for years and years and years. And yet... God used David. Last example, very quickly. David had a son named Solomon who became king. And after he had to deal with a brother who wanted to be king, Solomon became king. And Solomon had, had heard from his mama about the devastation in the house and had seen the devastation in the home. And, and so in 1 Kings 3, Solomon is a newly minted king and he's got these millions of people and these responsibilities and it's incredible. And so God appears to him in a dream and he says, Solomon, what do you want me to do for you? This is what Solomon says, godly Solomon. This is incredible. Solomon says this, 1 Kings 3, verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude So give your servant a discerning heart, a heart of wisdom. Give your servant a discerning heart so that I might discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people that you've given to me. And, And the Lord says, Solomon, because you've asked for a heart of wisdom and not for riches or honor or power, I'll give you riches and honor and power and a heart of wisdom. This is, this, Solomon's a great man. And so you read the next few chapters, his life just takes off like a, like, like a, like a missile. He, he, he builds the temple. He dedicates the temple. He, acc- he accumulates a, a great, marvelous, wonderful wealth and power. People traveled from distant kingdoms that no one even heard of just to sit at his feet and to hear about the wisdom that Solomon w- 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 would just drop from his lips. I mean, he was on target. And then you get to chapter 11. And you go, really? Because in chapter 11 it says this, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. He chose these women from the nations concerning which the Lord Jehovah had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That's exactly what happened. And so Solomon abandoned the worship of God. He became an idolater. He took 700 wives, you know, political alliances, and 300 concubines. And then so uh, I back up and I say, Solomon. So, so. Why do we have this honesty in the Bible? You know, quite frankly, if I were in charge of writing the Bible, if I'd been the Holy Spirit, I would have left out some of these stories. I mean, really, it's much more fun talking about David without mentioning Bathsheba. Just say David married Bathsheba. It's much easier to talk about Solomon without going through all this, seed. and all the seed. And really, in Genesis, I just covered with Abraham, kind of a seedy story. There are some really bad stories in Genesis. If you're a new believer and have read Genesis, it is really powerfully rich with horrific illustrations. I think one reason God allowed us to get to glimpse into the hearts of these men is it stands as a strong warning to us. Listen to First Corinthians ten. It says this, verse 11, now these things happened to them, the Old Testament believers, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It says very plainly that one reason we have these stories is you look at your own heart and you say, you know, if it could happen, it happened to David and it happened to Solomon. And if Abraham made some boneheaded decisions, boy, I can do the very same thing. Give me grace today by your Holy Spirit, by your outstretched arm. Come, Lord God. If you think you've got it all together, be very careful. You're about to fall on your face. And the second reason I think they're written down is because it lets us know, listen, God uses broken people. That would be us. God uses broken people, both men and women, both children and adults. These people I've just mentioned all had incredible personal failures, but God used them. It's about, all about warning and reclamation. So I'm going to come to the last two guys I'm going to mention from Colossians chapter 4 this one, The last two men that I'm going to mention in Paul's cohort. The first is a man named Demas. Demas in the Greek language is kind of the shortened term for Demetrius. And Paul says about Demas, he just says very briefly and tersely in Colossians chapter 4, he says that, that Demas... Uh, sends his greetings to you, verse 14. Uh, Demas is there with Paul. He's in the inner circle. He's, he's he's there. But that's not the last word we have on Demas. The last word, church, we have on Demas is in the last book that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy. In the 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. So, so, so he says Demas in love with this present world. He does not say Demas has denied the reality of Christ. He does not say Demas has mocked the divinity of Christ, or the resurrection of Jesus. It just says, Demas, in love with this present world. In other words, ease and comfort and a desire to not go hard had taken slowly its place in Demas' heart and had pulled him away from devotion to the reality of Christ and a commitment to do the right thing. He, he just loved the present world. and It says he, he's loved the present world and he's deserted me. The word for deserted means to, to, to fall away because of inattention, neglect, or just forgetfulness. Inattention, neglect, or forgetfulness. Demas did not become a heretic. Demas just slowly drifted, compromised, compromised, didn't do the hard thing, and and he just deserted. The last word we have on Demas is, he has deserted me. In Luke chapter 21, Christ is says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Is says this, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But I say, stay awake. Be alert. I look at this. I think, you know, lest your heart be weighed down with with dissipation. Dissipation is is just giving yourself to those things that feed your lust. You just lay the reins down and let yourself go. Drunkenness is, of course, drinking too much alcohol, but, but I think the drunkenness is kind of an, an overarching theme about giving yourself to those things that don't really matter whatsoever. And uh, it, it can happen. It's just, it just happens. Huh? You have to be real, real careful. I mean, I just confess, I came in this morning, saw two of our pastoral staff guys, two guys I love deeply, and I walked in the office and I said, how did you guys do yesterday in the college pick'em's? Because we have a little college picking thing going on on staff, and uh, and we talked for just thirty seconds. And I thought, you know, the first thing I said to them on the Lord's day was something about football. Instead of saying, "Hey guys, I pray that God really seizes our heart today," or "I I pray that God does a a great work in in people's lives today," or let's, you know, so just dissipations, just being off target. And then he says, the cares of life. These aren't bad things, but the cares of life, being unfocused, being schizophrenic about where your attention goes, the cares of life can just make you ineffective and unfocused. The writer of Proverbs says this Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Listen. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of the Lord." He says, you know, God, God, keep me from two extremes. Don't, don't let me get so arrogant and wealthy and out there and good looking and socially accepted and, and, and so dialed into the culture that people keep telling me how wonderful I am and I believe them and I think I don't really need the Lord. And, and, and don't let me get so poor and down that, that I, I'm, I compromise my integrity and steal. And it can happen. Hosea 13 talks about how people fell away from the Lord. Verse 6 says this, When when I fed them, they became satisfied. And when they became satisfied, they forgot me. Why are we here today? Well, It's the worship. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember. Remember. We're here today because we're saying, if you're a true believer, I need the grace and the empowerment of the living Christ. So the last word. On Demas, he deserted me. He gave his life to affluence and ease and comfort, and he deserted me. Therefore, if you love Greek culture, and you're having a baby, and you're told there's going to be a boy, the names on your short list might be Nicholas or Alexander, but it is not Demas. Because the only time we meet Demas in the Bible is he's a deserter from the faith. What's in a name? Demas. See, the Bible says in Proverbs 21, A good name is more desirable than great riches, and to be esteemed is better than silver or gold. What kind of name and legacy will you leave? If you have 2 o'clock in the morning friends who walk with you and encourage you and you're strong, you will leave a good name. Listen to me. Listen to me. Recently I was watching a Marvel comic movie. hate to admit it, but I was. And Doctor Strange is played by a guy named Benedict Cumberbatch. He also is Sherlock in the BBC production that is so good, and did a wonderful movie called The Imitation Game. Anyway, he's a very good actor. I was was thinking about Benjamin—excuse me, Benedict Cumberbatch, and I was thinking Benedict. And then I thought, I don't think I've ever met a Benedict, ever. And yet— Benedict is a godly man in church history because Benedict started the Benedictine order and the Benedictine rule that talks about the importance of of praying several times during the day, so forth and so on. He was a good man, a very fine man. But I've never met a Benedict. Do you know why I've never met a Benedict in this country? Here's why, this guy. Benedict Arnold. If you're an American, if you're from Great Britain, Benedict is still probably a good name. But if you have just a cursory understanding of history, there was a a general inside George Washington's ring of generals, a man that he trusted and valued named Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold married a wealthy Philadelphia socialite who was a pro-British sympathizer. She was beautiful and very, very accomplished person. And Benedict Arnold thought he'd been passed over for being a, a full general, and so he became bitter. And he was in charge of the West Point area in New York and thought if the British could come through there, they might win the war. And so he contacted the British and he said, I will, I will lay down the arms for my army. I'll let you win a battle up here and you can have the whole state of New York and New York City. And his plans were found out. They captured a, a brilliant, wonderful young man named Major Andre who was a spy, and Washington had to have him executed, which broke Washington's heart because he admired General Andre, but what really broke his heart is that a man that he trusted implicitly sold out his country, Benedict Arnold. So you'll never meet, a child. if you know American history, you will never meet a child named Benedict. Now, you'll meet children named after Alexander Hamilton, or Henry Knox, who was really a cool guy, General Knox, or, or Nathaniel Green, my great grandfather was named George Washington Wall. I love George Washington. But never Benedict in the U.S. because his name has been sullied by this man. What's in a name? What type of name will you leave those behind you? Man, I want to hit the tape hard. I want to hit the tape hard. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man of many companions may come to a ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Thank God for those people. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Listen, that is so true. What type of name will you lead? The second guy I want to introduce you to today and talk about is a guy named John Mark. Uh, John Mark is mentioned in this text. Paul says very briefly regarding John Mark, verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Receive him. Brief background. John Mark is a young man. Paul and Barnabas, a great team, are doing their first missionary journey. They're preaching the gospel. They're seeing people converted. They're seeing cultures being impacted. It's a glorious time. And, 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 and Acts 13, 13 says briefly, John Mark went back basically to Jerusalem. We think John Mark got homesick. John Mark just couldn't hang in there. He was too young to do the things that they wanted him to do. And that's all it says. And, and so the next few chapters talks about Barnabas and Paul, or really Paul and Barnabas doing this and, and encouraging the hearts and building people up in the faith and being used of God. And then in Acts 15, they have the Jerusalem Council. There's a monumental time in the church, and the church affirms salvation by faith alone through the work of Jesus Christ alone. It was a great moment. And in, in the aftermath and after, in the afterglow of the Jerusalem Council, where Paul won a significant victory for the gospel. It says that they, Paul turned to Barnabas and says, Barnabas, let's go back and let's visit these churches that we've seen started and let's build them up in in Christ and let's preach justification by faith and let's let them know how, how much Jesus is Lord and Savior. And Barnabas says, I think that's a great idea. I want to take my cousin with us again. And Paul said, no way. He deserted us. He didn't stand by the stuff He hasn't fulfilled his period of exile in my mind. I'm not taking it. And Barnabas said, oh, I think we should. Paul said, no, I don't think so. Barnabas said, yeah. Paul said, nah. And the Bible says this, a sharp disagreement caused them to part ways. Even apostles argue. (laughs) Barnabas took John Mark, went there. Paul took Silas, went that way. Paul, a recovering Pharisee. Paul probably grew up in a home where the smock that he wore said, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Paul probably said to his contemporaries frequently, suck it up, buttercup. Buttercup. He may have been the first one to come up with the phrase, if you can't run with the big dogs, don't get off the porch. Paul was hard charging, a recovering Pharisee. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Personal opinion, I think as Paul grew older in his faith, grace became more a part of his life. Listen to these verses. Earlier in his ministry, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles. That's a a statement of humility, but but, but really saying I'm the least of the apostles is like saying I I won the Nobel Prize for literature, but probably this guy from Chile should have won, but I'm glad to take it. I mean, it's not not a, a, a huge statement. And then he says in Ephesians 3 verse 8, I am the least of all God's people. In other words, of all God's people, I am the most undeserving. Wow. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Hear that? Least of the apostles, least of God's people, chief of sinners. And I think as you you trace that in the life of the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit's working on all of us right now. Right now, the Holy Spirit is working on us. I think as we walk with God and we see the glory of the cross and our own sin, it leads to humility. I, I personally believe that if Paul and Barnabas had had this discussion probably two years later, there would not have been a sharp disagreement. Because Paul had understood the glory and grandeur of the cross. Let me say this very quickly. People say, well, we just need to love people, and we absolutely do. But you have to realize that that love has a specific goal in mind, which is seeing people understand and glory in the greatness of Christ and walk in obedience. Love doesn't mean that you just kind of willy-nilly throw out there and accept anything and everything. Love is doing that which is best for other people in light of eternity. For example, I love to meditate on Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about uh, people without Christ, and he says this in verse 17, I I, I say and I testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as non-believers do in the futility of their minds. He says that they're, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. It's a strong statement. What Paul is saying is that, is that when people run from the reality of God, they can't put life together. And, 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 they, and they walk in darkness and their hearts get hardened. He says this, but, but you did not learn Christ that way. And then he just says, you must live in this fashion. He says, verse 25, put away falsehood. And speak the truth. Just be the, a truth speaker. He says, verse 26 don't let, don't be a person of anger. He says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Work things out. He says, if you grew up as a, a thief where you kind of stole and you bartered wrongly and you used scales that weren't weighed rightly, he says, yeah, don't, don't do that. In fact, he said, in fact, work and live in such a way that you have something to share with people who are in need. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. It says, and and always speak graciously. And I'm going, how, how, how? Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. How? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving, just as God has forgiven you in Christ. Be imitators of Christ. Walk in love, chapter 5, verse 1. And you'll be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then he goes right back, but, but, he says, but, and this is in the city of Ephesus that was known for its vast carnality, but but, but sexual immorality and impurity and, and covetousness must not even be whispered among you. Be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral without repentance or impure without repentance or covetous without repentance, I'm adding those words, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God Let no one deceive you because of these things. The wrath of God is coming. Boom. Paul grew in grace. Well, let me cover this. How was John Mark reclaimed? How can you be reclaimed for Christ? Or how can you continue to be strong in the Lord? I'm inferring this from, from Scripture. It's not clearly stated. I'm going to mention three things. If you're not where you should be, how can you get stronger? If if you're really outside of the bounds, how can you be reclaimed? Or how can you continue to be strong in the Lord? Three things. Number one, John Mark had Barnabas, his cousin. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Do you have... Barnabases in your life. Are you a Barnabas? Now, let me tell you this. When I talk about, the Bible talks about encouraging people. It's not talking about being a walking Hallmark card display calendar. I love you, man. You're great. Wouldn't change a thing about you. You are a snowflake, unique, wonderful that type of thing. A certain amount of that is okay. But when the Bible talks about encouragement, it's talking about turning your eyes to the glory and grandeur of God for you in your life. So if I were going to encourage people, I would say to a John Mark who's kind of slid back, John Mark, listen to me. Listen, listen. We serve an Abba Father who loves us tenderly. We serve a God who is never done with us, and his arms are always open wide. And we serve a God who has a heaven for us and who glories in in doing good to his children. Run to him. Find your identification in Christ. I, I do love you, and I'm so thankful for your friendship. I'm so thankful you're my younger cousin. But really, see the wonder and the glory of Christ. I was thinking about Psalm 31 recently; just a wonderful psalm, where the psalmist says, "This, listen, this is so good." Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and which you have worked for those who take refuge in you, before the watching world. Just it's a great verse, verse 19. So you say to people, man, listen, there is abundant goodness in the storehouse of the Father's mercy to pour out in your life. How how abundant is the goodness of the Father that he stored up for you and that he has worked for for those who fear him and take refuge in him. So run to the reality of the living God and and, and find fresh strength and refuge in him. That's how we encourage people. Do, do, Do you do that to people? Do people do that to you? Do we have Barnabases? If you're you're going to go strong, you need Barnabases. You know, secondly, he had a wonderful mentor. And his wonderful mentor had had drunk deeply at the fountain of grace. His mentor is a guy named the Apostle Peter. (laughs) In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, John Mark, who is my precious son in the faith, and, and we have the gospel of Mark. Peter spoke it. Mark wrote it down. Mark. And, and, and Mark's mentor, Peter, understood what it meant to be reclaimed by God because Peter said, Lord, I will never desert you to Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows twice. Never, never, never. These dudes may, Lord. These losers may, but not me. And so he follows Christ. After he's betrayed, he's beaten, Jesus is. And Peter's somewhere with an eye contact of Jesus. He's warm in his face. A little servant girl says, you're one of his guys. Peter says, not me. Another guy at the campfire said, you know, you have an accent like a Galilean. Surely you're with the teacher. Not me. Some, another guy said, not me cock And Peter looks up, and I don't know how this happened. He looks up and he makes eye contact with Jesus. The Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. Bitterly. And then Christ is resurrected, and he appears to the disciples on the beach. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? I think talking about the fish, probably. And Peter says, yes, Lord. And he asked him three times, do you love me, Peter? And he said, shepherd my sheep. So, so Peter understood grace. Now, see, I, I need people in my life who really get the gospel of grace. That God loves us in Christ in spite of ourselves. He forgives our most horrendous sins. We need those people in our lives. We need to be married to those people. <laughs> and the third thing he had is that Peter had somebody who really taught him the truth. And, and, and excuse me, in John Mark's life, that person was Paul, in part. Paul who always stood on the truth and pointed the apostolic authority of his writings and said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction, and in righteousness. I mean, I need people in my life who, who say, we meet God in this book. This is where we stand. This is how we live. And I need to be appalled to people around me. So if I'm going to grow strong in faith and be reclaimed or continue to go whatever in the direction of the cross, I need to have Barnabases. I need to have mentors and friends like Peter who've tasted deeply of grace out of their brokenness. And I need to have teachers who point to the scripture. Because God wants to use us. God wants to make us people who represent him, church, to a world that's hurting and in need of grace. Let's pray. So, Lord, we uh, bow before you this morning, and and we just thank you that the Bible is not a book of superlative, biographical snippets, but it's a book of, of brutal honesty. And I thank you that as we read the Scripture and we see Peter's Denials, and we see Paul's lack of grace towards Mark and Barnabas. These heroes, heroes, we stand back and we say, God, have mercy upon us. Uh, Thank you that you use broken people who are battered and beat down and have a, a past that causes us to blush as we taste of grace. Lord, make us men and women who represent Jesus in our culture. Uh, Bring people in our lives who are Barnabases to encourage us to look to Christ. As as so many contemporaries around us tell us to look to ourselves and to pad our own nest and to affirm ourselves, as some of those things might be okay, bring Barnabases into our life to say, Behold the majesty of Jesus Behold the love of Abba Father. Bring, bring Peters into our lives uh, who have tasted deeply at the fountain of grace. Bring into our lives Paul's who will stand up and with love and discipline and energy say, Behold the word of God. Live there. And Lord, let us finish well. Do not let us be a byword for mocking like a Benedict Arnold. But let us finish with discipline and grace and kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.